The following is a resource from the Dwark Hill Study Center. Dwark Hill exists to help Christians take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We hope that you enjoy this lecture. Let's get started tonight. Session 7. Let's just give a quick review. Last week we talked about the seven trumpets, the warnings and the judgments that came. We said they were modeled off of two things, two stories. First we had the story of the of Joshua and the marching around the city each time around the city, blowing these trumpets, and the trumpets therefore were meant to be warnings. Warnings of a coming cataclysmic judgment that God was about to bring about. And the citizens of Jericho were to hear in those trumpets the warnings of this coming judgment that would ultimately bring down the walls and give victory to the Israelites. So first, we we looked at these trumpets through the lens of the story of Joshua and the conquest of of Jericho and Canaan. And then secondly, on the other side, also the warning plagues that were brought against Pharaoh in Egypt by Moses. That each of the ten plagues was, on the one hand, a judgment against Pharaoh, but on the other hand, a warning of a greater judgment. And we know that ultimately in the tenth plague, uh, the killing of the firstborn was an ultimate and cataclysmic judgment there. And then even more, the crushing of Israel, of, excuse me, Egypt in the, uh, in the Red Sea. So we looked at the trumpets by that, and we mentioned that there was a similar pattern. Four plus three. Four judgments upon the earth, and then three from a heavenly perspective. But that the three were broken down, so that the last three trumpets, like the last three seals, were broken down into two judgments, two seals, two trumpets, with a pause between the sixth and the seventh, an intermission. And as we look to uh, this evening at the intermission now between the, the sixth and seventh trumpet we should look for some symmetry then between the intermission of the 6th and 7th seal and the intermission of the 6th and 7th trumpet. Just as there was symmetry between the first four seals, judgments upon the earth, and the first four trumpets, which were upon the earth, so we should look for some symmetry in the two intermissions. So when we left off uh, last week, we were in, or just beginning, the second intermission the intermission between the 6th and 7th trumpet. So this evening, we look at Revelation chapter 10. Now, it's important that we understand as we begin Revelation chapter 10 that we are coming to what some have viewed as the, the climax, or not the climax, but a turning point in, the, uh, in John's vision of Revelation. In fact, Richard Bauckham, who is the author of the book I recommended to you, Theology of the Book of Revelation, and in his larger book, Climax of Prophecy, Richard Bauckham actually argues that this is, in fact, the revelation that John receives. That is, that chapters 10 and 11 are what the book is driving at. This is the message of the book, the message, in fact, that was on the scroll that John received. Let's look then uh, at at chapter 10 and and get some sense of this. I want to look at two important points uh, or figures in this chapter, and then I want to make four Observations, and you see that there on your outline. The mighty angel, the scroll, and then four observations. So let's look at chapter 10. 
John writes, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it. And he said, There will be no more delay. The days of the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet. The mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go and take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Okay, so chapter 10 here, according to Balkum, and I'm inclined to agree with him at this point, we have reached this focus of the book. So let's consider these two important images Uh, that we get here in this chapter. First, the mighty angel in verse 1. Now, who is this mighty angel? Some have actually thought that the mighty angel in this text is Jesus Christ himself. Now, the reason they think this is because of the imagery uh, used to describe this mighty angel. It it sounds like divine uh, descriptions. We've got the rainbow around the head. We think of the the throne, the circular rainbow image around the throne in chapter 4. He's robed in a cloud. His face is like the sun. If you remember the image of Jesus in chapter 1, John is not able to look upon the face of Jesus. It's like the sun. His legs are like fiery pillars. And when we think of fiery pillars, we think of the, the exodus and God leading his people out in the fiery pillar. So because of all this divine imagery, some have actually thought that the angel, in this case, is Jesus himself. Now, I'm not going to take that position in this case. I mention it just so uh, you know that some people think that. Um, for one, the reason I don't think this is because never anywhere else is Jesus ever referred to as an angel. So I'm inclined not to think that this is Jesus. Well, then who is this? Well, I believe that what we have here is an image of that Old Testament figure... That pops up every now and then in the Old Testament, and that is the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. You you might remember stories like when Jacob wrestles with God. Well, who is he wrestling with there? He's wrestling with the angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord was this mysterious figure. It was not like any of the other angels, not Michael, not Gabriel, but but a unique uh, appearance uh, somehow of the presence of God. That when the angel of the Lord was there, God was there. People responded to the angel of the Lord the way they would respond to God in fear. So I think that's what we have here. And that's why he represents, he comes with all these divine, this divine imagery because he represents God himself. It's not God, 
but it's the appearance of God, if you will, in the image of an angel. Now, this is an angel that we've seen before within the book. This is the mighty angel that we saw in chapter 5. The mighty angel who went on this quest to find one who was worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And that's relevant because in our text here, we're going to see a scroll again. But a couple points about this mighty angel. First, he stands with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. Now, this is a very important image here because what we have in this angel is an image of authority. That is to say, he has authority over both land and sea. That's what the image of standing on the land and on the sea represents. Remember uh, what we talked about last week when we talked about Jesus walking on water. That was not simply a, 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 a miracle of power. Look what, look what I'm able to do. And, and wow, Jesus is really powerful. He must be God. I mean, it is that, but, but it's much more than that. When Jesus comes walking across the stormy sea, what he's saying is, I rule over the sea. I have authority over the sea. Remember when he calmed the storm with the disciples in the boat, what does he say? Or what do the, the disciples say? They say, who is this one who has authority over the wind and the waves? It's a statement of authority. So here we have this angel, this mighty angel, standing with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land, having authority over both. Now, why this is of particular importance, I think, for the readers, for us, is because what we're going to see in chapter 13 is that two beasts will appear, empowered by the dragon, and they will appear to make war against God's people. And what's interesting is where did the beast come from? The first beast comes up out of the sea. The second beast comes up out of the land. But what we and the readers learn right from the get-go, before we're introduced to these awful beasts and all that they can do against His church, what we learn is that our God is sovereign over the land and over the sea, and therefore He is sovereign over the beasts that come from both. So right at the outset, we are encouraged with, uh, with this image. The second thing to note about this mighty angel, are his legs. His legs are pillars of fire. I've already mentioned, and the image that should come, I've already mentioned this, and the image that should come to our mind is that of the Exodus. There's an Exodus theme here, right? The angel stands here with these legs having authority over land and sea, but they are legs that are pillars of fire. And where was the pillar of fire used in the Exodus? The pillars of fire were used to lead Israel out of Egypt, to lead them in deliverance from the oppressive powers of Pharaoh, to lead them through the sea as the sea was split open, through the wilderness, and on to Canaan, the promised land, the new creation. So again, the theme that's here for us as we see these images is what God is doing, what he's going to do for his people. This mighty angel comes. Be encouraged. In the midst of the oppressive, beastly powers that are going to have authority over you, know that one has come with authority over them, and one has come to lead you out. Okay, so the first point of the intermission, uh, chapter 10, the mighty angel. The second point is the scroll. Now again, this is very important because it relates us back to chapter 5. In chapter 5, we saw these two things, a mighty angel and a scroll. The mighty angel asking, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And we saw a scroll in the hand of God, but the scroll was sealed. 
But now, now we see another mighty angel, and he has the scroll, and the scroll is unsealed. Now, again, there is some debate over this. The term is little scroll. Uh, it is, a, it is a, a variant of the term, the word for scroll. And so some have said this is not the same scroll. But I, again, here I stand with Richard Bauckham, who says, look, if in chapter 5 we have a mighty angel and a scroll, and in chapter 10 we have a mighty angel and a scroll, I think we are inclined to believe that this is the same scroll, the same mighty angel. And so what we have here is the scroll that was bound up in chapter 5, but Jesus, who is worthy to break its seals and to lose it so that it might be opened, has done so. The breaking of the seven seals, the blowing of the trumpets, now the scroll is opened, and here it is presented to John. In fact, even remember in chapter 1, the way the transmission was supposed to take place. The scroll is the, or excuse me, the book of Revelation is the revelation of the Father given to Jesus, that through Jesus it might be given to his angel, that through the angel it will be given to John, and through John be given to us. And of course, that's exactly what we have now worked out from chapters 5 to chapter 10. Jesus took the scroll from the Father. Jesus broke the seals. Now he has given it to the angel. The angel, in this case, gives it to John. And John passes it on to us. And in that way, we can stand with Bauckham and say, yes, perhaps chapter 10 is, in fact, the very message of the book. Now, let's make four observations about chapter 10 as we move forward and prepare. First observation, the warnings, that is the trumpet blast that have been blowing throughout history, ultimately, the, the warnings will not last forever. The warnings will not last forever. Verse 6. And he, that is the angel, the mighty angel, swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. Yes, God has sent out his warnings and he sent them out throughout history. But what we learn here in this prophetic certainty is that the time will come when the warnings cease. And we're to be aware of this. All nations and powers, all human beings are to be aware of this, that we should not uh, grow uh, used to the warnings, as if somehow they will just always be here. The way it is now is the way it always will be. No, says John in this revelation, or the mighty angel in this case. The warnings will in fact not last forever. Again, like the trumpets going around Jericho, we're not going to march around this city forever. The time will come when the walls come crumbling down. Now, I want to make a point about this because I was talking to uh, JB uh, last week after class, and, and we were discussing this, that when we apply the book of Revelation, it's our tendency always to view it in terms of the ultimate, the ultimate coming of Jesus Christ, the second coming. And certainly this, this uh, statement in Revelation chapter 10 is pointing to that. The time will come when there are no more warnings and the ultimate cataclysmic judgment that is the second coming of Jesus Christ will occur. Yes, that's true. But good chances that will not happen in our lifetime, though it may. But I think if we're applying the book of Revelation consistently within our lives, we should not only apply this to the ultimate ending of things, but we should apply it also to the penultimate endings. 
That is, there was a time coming for Rome. This would be very applicable to the people who first read it. There is a time coming for Rome when the warnings will be over. They will cease. There will be no more delay. And final judgment will fall upon the beastly power of Rome. And in fact, it did. In 410 AD, as they were sacked by the Visigoths, that was the beginning of the final end for them. And Rome crumbled away and is no more today. Every kingdom, I don't care whether it's Rome or whether it's America, every kingdom must heed the warnings and know the time is coming when they will be no more. And I would argue also that this applies not only to kingdoms, but we can apply this, though it's not the first intention of the book. We can also apply this to our own lives. Brothers and sisters, we get warnings throughout our lives. Yet the time will come when we will die. There will come a time when all the warnings cease for us as individuals as well as for kingdoms. And we should understand that. We should not lightly blow off the warnings of God to us as humanity, to us as nations, and to us as individuals. In the end, the warnings will not last forever. We have already seen that they have failed to induce repentance, and eventually they will end. It's interesting, in in verse 3 here in chapter 10, you get a very unusual uh, uh, bit of the story, right? The angel stands, he swears, he raises his hand, and he swears before the God of heaven and earth, and he shouts, and as he does, John hears seven thunders speak. And John says, oh, oh, I, I better write this down, like he's written down about the seven trumpets, and as he wrote down about the, the, uh, the seven seals. I guess John, John figures, oh, I, I, mu- I must better write this down. But in fact, as he begins to write it, the Lord says to him, no, 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 don't write that down. I don't write that down. Th- this is not to be written. Now, what's going on there? It's very unusual. And I think the answer is what John hears when he hears about the, the, uh, the, the speaking of these seven thunders is what would be, a, we can imagine, another set of seven judgments, another warnings, maybe even ramped up anymore. Remember the seven seals, a quarter of this was destroyed and a quarter of that. With the trumpets, it was a third. Perhaps with the thunders, it would be ramped up one more, a half of this and a half of that. But no, don't write that down. Seal it up. And again, the image here is, there's no more warnings. Don't write that down. There's no more delay. The end is coming. All right, so first observation. The warnings will not last forever. Second observation. Now is the time for the mystery to be revealed. This is coming from verse 7. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet... The mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. What we're told is this time is the time where the mystery will be revealed. What mystery? Well, the mystery given to the Old Testament prophets. Now, what mystery would that be? Well, if you read throughout the prophets and throughout the Psalms, the anticipation that is given to them is there will come a day when the Gentiles, people of all nations and tribes, people you do not know, will flood in to your kingdom, right? They're going to flood into the people of God. They're going to become part of God's people. But, but the question has been there for them, how? When? When will this happen? 
And for so long, this has been for the disciples, or excuse me, the, uh, for Israel and the prophets, a great mystery. Now, I believe this is referring to, and, and you'll see the connection with uh, uh, our text here, in Daniel chapter 12, verses 4 through 10. Actually, the whole chapter, but I'll just read for you uh, Daniel 12, 4 through 10. And listen, you'll hear the connections right off, and we'll get this idea of a mystery, because we're going to hear about a scroll here, and the scroll is sealed. And of course, we'll, we'll be able to make the connection with our passage. So, this is Daniel 12, 4 through 10. But you, Daniel... Shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on the river bank and the other on that river bank. And one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river. Again here, here, above the waters of the river, right? He's standing with one foot on the river bank and one foot on the river. The connection with our text. And one said to the man who was clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. So Daniel sees these two angels, and he's he's just had this wonderful vision, the whole book of Daniel. And now he wonders, and he hears one angel saying to the, to the other, hey, when do you think these things are going to happen? And the angels have this discussion back and forth, and, and then Daniel jumps in and says, yes, when will these things take place? And the one angel says to the other, these things will take place when the power of the people of God has been completely shattered. That's very odd. When will these things take place? When will the end come? When the power of God's people has been completely crushed. And Daniel says, when? How will this be? And the angel actually says, it's not for you to know, Daniel. You're going to go and you're going to lie with your fathers. The scroll is sealed. It's not to be opened. It will not apply to you and to your time. It's for another time to come. But what we're learning in Revelation chapter 10 is this is that time. We are at the end, as we've said. We're at the end in 2013. We're at the end in 90 AD. We'll be at the end, however knows how long from now, before Jesus comes. This whole period is the end. The time that Daniel longed to understand. Now we have seen for the scroll that Daniel had to seal has been unsealed. By Jesus Christ in the breaking of the seven seals and the blowing of the seven trumpets. And now is that time. But what's particularly important for us here is to note what the angels mention about the mystery. How will the mystery be fulfilled? And when will it be fulfilled? And the answer is when the power of God's people has been fully shattered. When the people of God have been fully crushed. Again, here we should hear what Paul said 
As we looked at last week in Colossians chapter 1, I rejoice for I am filling up in my body that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Paul rejoices for he sees in his suffering the shattering of God's people. And he knows that it will be through that that the love and ministry of Jesus Christ is extended out into the world. It will be by this that Gentiles and members of every race, tongue and tribe are brought in to the kingdom. Now what we learn here is an addition onto what we learned in the intermission between the seven seals. What we learned in that intermission is that the people of God will suffer. There will be a martyr army, a holy army of God's people who have been faithful witnesses and suffer. But what we learn in this second intermission is a nuance, a new, a new um, reality of this suffering. And that is that our suffering will actually be the trigger for the building of God's kingdom. Our being crushed, our being shattered, our suffering, our martyrdom will in fact be the means by which the kingdom is built. There is the mystery the prophets did not at that point understand. And by it, God's people of every race and every tribe will be gathered. We'll talk more about that later. Because we need to be prepared for the rest of these chapters. The next several chapters, there's going to be a lot of church suffering. And we need to be prepared for that. So, second observation. Now is the time for the mystery to be revealed. Third observation. We must eat the scroll. We must eat the scroll. John is told now by the angel, hey, go take the scroll. And so John goes to the angel and he says, may may I have the scroll? He asks for the scroll. The scroll is given to him and then he's told, eat the scroll. That is, this scroll, this revelation, this mystery that is about to be revealed is not something simply to be observed. That's the point that we're to take from this. This is not something that's simply supposed to be observed. It is something that is supposed to be ingested. We're to take this into us. And not just John. The implication is not just John, but all of us. The eating of the scroll is owning it, making it your identity. John is told to eat the scroll. Now, in the eating of the scroll, and the reference here is to Ezekiel... In Ezekiel, he begins his prophetic ministry this way. He's given a scroll, and he's told to eat it. And like uh, John here, when he eats the scroll, the scroll is sweet, sweet like honey. Now for John, it will be sweet initially upon his lips, but it will turn sour or bitter within his stomach. We don't get that in Ezekiel. Ezekiel, we're never told it becomes bitter or sour within his stomach. But, but if you're looking for a point of connection on this, the point of connection is that the scroll that Ezekiel is called to eat is a scroll of laments. So the scroll itself is bitter, right? It's laments. But as Ezekiel eats it, it does taste like honey upon his lips. So let's think about this for a second with John. John is told to eat the scroll. And as he begins to eat it, he says it was sweet upon his lips. Why is it sweet? Because the scroll says that you and I and John are co-workers, in fact, with Jesus Christ in the building of his kingdom. Yay for that! Yet we're excited. We participate in the building of his kingdom. We're co-workers with him. Yes, beautiful, sweet. 
But then secondly, as he ingests it, as he begins now to digest what it means to be a co-worker with Christ, it turns his stomach sour. It's bitter. Why? Because in this case, to be a co-worker with Jesus Christ is to be a co-sufferer. It is to share in the fellowship of his sufferings that we might share in his glory. And like Christ, who was called by the Father to drink a bitter cup and drink it to the dregs, so we are in fact called to eat a bitter scroll. Yes, we're co-workers, and that is exciting. What a privilege. But let's go into it sober-mindedly. It's a bitter scroll that we are called to eat, for we will suffer. And brothers and sisters, even here in this class, we are not called to be observers of the scroll. This is a call to action, this book, and we ourselves must eat the scroll and say, yes, Lord, yes, we ourselves will participate in this. This will be our identity. So third observation of chapter 10, we must eat the scroll. Fourth observation, we must prophesy to the nations and to the kings. After he eats the scroll, verse 11, then I was told you must prophesy again about or to many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. One interesting note here about now this call to, now what is he to do? What is the ministry? What is the call to arms? What are the marching orders of the Christians who have eaten the scroll? Get to work. Prophesy. Be my witnesses. Now, what's interesting here, one thing that's interesting, is who John is supposed to prophesy to. Then again, I was told, you must prophesy again to many peoples, nations, languages. Now, so far we'd hear many peoples, nations, languages, tribes. But in this case, there's a change, and we're told peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Now, why is that significant? Because we're about to now enter into the portion of the book where we are going to see the kings of the earth, the beastly powers mounted in all their force against God, his Christ, and his church. And John is saying, we are called to prophesy, to be witnesses of the Lamb, witnesses of the King of Kings, to the kings and the nations of this earth. We are not simply called to be witnesses to our neighbors, though we are called to be that, or to our family members or our co-workers. Yes, absolutely, we are called to be all that. But this says we are also part of something bigger. We actually have something to say to President Obama, to Mr. Assad in Syria, to Mr. Putin in Russia. We have something to say to all the kings of all the earth. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. The Christian gospel is, you cannot avoid it, it is inextricably political. It's not partisan. Oh, but it's political. Because what the Christian gospel says is that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has, as he commissioned his disciples in the Great Commission, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. 
And that means that all the kings of the earth must bow before him. They must understand that their authority has now been relativized and that their authority is in fact a delegated power. Now John is told here, you are to prophesy to nations and to kings. And that's true not just for him, but it is true for us. We are to go and to disciple nations as well as individuals. Now know this though, because it can seem overwhelming. I mean, who who are we, right? Who are we? We're little tiny Christians. How are we to speak to nations and to kings and to kingdoms? Well, if you think we're tiny and insignificant, politically speaking, think about how John must have felt. 90 AD in the presence of the great, mighty power of Rome. But what we learn in the book of Revelation is you will be effective. Remember, the mystery has been revealed to us. You will be successful. The kingdom will grow. And you will be successful even through your sufferings. No, let me, let me take that back. You will be successful especially through your sufferings. So if you witness to the nations or to the kings and you suffer, brothers and sisters, don't be discouraged. Know that it is through the crushing of the power of God's people that the kingdoms of this world will in fact repent. That's what Daniel was promised in his vision. Now let's just take a case in point here. Let's just look for a second to get confidence in this. Let's think about Rome itself. Can you imagine being John and thinking that this could be true? That somehow Rome would be converted. Rome would repent because of the witness of these seemingly insignificant Christians. But think about it. That's actually what happened. Right, John is in 90 AD. I don't think he could ever imagine that that would take place. It must have been too amazing for him to imagine. But in fact, that is what happened. For in 410, the Visigoths come in. Rome is crushed. It crumbles. But a hundred years before that, Constantine had become a Christian and Christianity was beginning to spread throughout the empire. So that when Rome crumbles as a power, the culture itself has been converted. Of course, not in totality. Not everybody in Rome was a Christian, but in mass. For the most part, what was once the Roman Empire had become Christian territory. And from there on, for the next thousand years, we know Christianity would dominate all over Europe. And the eastern part of the empire became the Byzantine Empire. Christianity took over what once was the Roman Empire. And let's ask, how did it happen? How did that happen? Did it happen by the mighty judgments of God? The blowing of the trumpets? No. It happened in the Colosseum. It happened through the suffering of God's people. It happened as the great Tertullian, the church father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs will be and is, in fact, the seed of the church. Where the blood of the martyrs falls, the church will grow. And in fact, that is exactly what happened. One of my favorite historians Will Durant, who was an atheist, by the way, but did his great volumes on on, uh, world history. 
in his volume on Rome, fascinating, the title of it, and remember, he's an atheist, right? But he's, he's a good historian. And his, his volume on Rome is actually called Caesar and Christ. And he discusses the suffering of the Christian church and the persecution under the Roman emperors. And what's fascinating is when he comes to the end of the Roman Empire, he makes this statement. And again, this is coming from the pen of an atheist. And here's what he says. In the end, Christ and Caesar had met in the Colosseum and Christ had won. Christ and Caesar had met in the Colosseum and Christ had won. Right? Durant is able to look at it and say, in the moment, if you'd ask who's winning this, Caesar is winning. Christ, the church, is being crushed, eaten by wild beasts, absolutely no power, no victory. But in the end, Christ had won. It was through the Colosseum, not through the judgments, by the crushing of the church, that in fact, God was successfully building his kingdom. Prophesy, John is told, to the nations and to the kings. And if you suffer, that is the very means by which God will build his church. Okay, so that's chapter 10. Let's jump over into chapter 11. In chapter 11 now, we're going to expand on that last point, the prophesying of John and, and, uh, and the church to the nations and to kings. We're going to zoom in now and think about the ministry of the Christian church as, uh, uh, in, in fulfillment of what John was told to do. So let's think about the church's uh, ministry here. This is uh, in chapter 11. Let me read the beginning of this. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God in the altar. Count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes down from their mouths and delivers, or comes, yeah, uh, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as they want. Let me just stop there and let's make some, some points about this. I want to make some points now about the ministry of the church, this measured witness of God's church. I think that's how we have it here on our outline. Let's start by asking first, what are your expectations? Well, what are your expectations for the future? What are your expectations for what God is going to do throughout history? What are you looking forward to? I, I hope and I think Revelation helps us in this case, I hope that your visions for the future are grand and glorious. That is, they're a vision of new creation. God's glory filling the earth. The knowledge and glory of God covering the earth like the waters cover the sea. I, I just hope that that's your vision. But, but the question we have to ask now as we move forward in this book, and we really have to ask it, is how do we get there? 
Okay, we have a grand vision for what the future will be, but are we prepared for the road that gets us there? Because the Bible is clear, it's a hard road. I do uh, screw tape letters with my seniors in our apologetics class here at Chapel Field. And so uh, on many Fridays, uh, I've given them an assignment to read a chapter of screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis's great work. And then on Friday, they journal on it and we read and discuss it together. And in screw tape uh, letter chapter uh, letter two, screw tape is is, as you know, if you've read it, screw tape is is instructing a fellow tempter, his nephew Wormwood. Uh, these fictitious demon figures who are commissioned by the evil one to derail uh, people from either becoming Christians or, or, or to derail them from their young faith and, and to, to cause them to fall into apostasy. And in Screwtape Letter 2, uh, the, the senior tempter, Screwtape, is, is instructing the junior tempter, Wormwood, in how best to derail this young Christian. And it's very interesting what he says in letter two. He says, Wormwood, give him, keep his head filled with visions of idealistic things. And don't let him come to realize that the way to gain the idealistic things is the hard and grueling daily grind and work. Right, so, so give him images of learning music, right? Like learning an instrument. I, I, I so badly wish I could play the guitar. So look at somebody who plays the guitar And say, oh yes, I want to do that, right? And you fill your mind with grand visions of being able to play the guitar and and play music. But don't bring to his mind what it takes actually to get there so that when he picks up the guitar and starts to play, it sounds horrible and your fingers hurt because you don't have calluses. And what do you end up saying? You look at it and go, oh man, this is hard. This isn't fun. This doesn't sound beautiful. And you give up the guitar. Or like in love, right? fill his head with ideas of romance so that when he actually falls in love, he has all these grand visions about what romance will be, but fails to realize the the hard road of daily grind of love, being there for one another, the work it takes in terms of relationships. And so what happens? You give up and you just let it go. And, And Screwtape says, do this for him in terms of his relationship with God. Right, give him a vision of the church, right? That's just this pristine thing, this grand and glorious image of the church. But when he comes to the actual church and sits next to real Christians who don't seem that grand and glorious, when Christianity becomes the work of self-discipline and denial and not just a constant overflowing exuberance, he will, like one who wants to learn an instrument without failing to realize, or without realizing the work that goes into it, will abandon Christianity. Well, I think we have to guard ourselves from the same thing in this case, right? We have to be careful that we don't have these grand idealistic visions of what the end will be and not realize the hard road that is there for the church on its way. You know, Martin Luther said, and this is so important, that now is the time of the cross. Then will be the time of glory. And in fact, Luther said, there is no way to glory but through the cross. 
And we need to appreciate that because I think what most people want, and maybe this is, again, me just uh, transferring here because it's probably what I want. What most of us want is a good and comfortable life. We want a life in which there will be as little trouble as possible, hopefully no terrible chronic illnesses, no major disasters or catastrophes, no friends and loved ones and family members dying prematurely. We, right, we want to just kind of avoid the trouble of life, get through this thing, die in our sleep at a good old age, preferably at the exact same time as our spouse, who is also very old, and then, boom, arrive in glory. I think that's what we want, right? That's the kind of thing that we want. Get through this life with as little trouble as possible. Die in our sleep, awake in glory. The problem is that's not what the Bible tells us to expect. Jesus, in fact, tells us it will be a hard road. It's a narrow way. Paul says it will be through much affliction that we must enter the kingdom. Now, let's think about that because the rest of this text is going to explain our ministry and the role that we have as the people of God as we go forward to prophesy. A sweet but bitter scroll. Now, first, our text in chapter 11 begins with very good news. We will be and are secured by God. We will be and we are, in fact, secured by God. By God. The image that we get here is the measuring of a temple. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and told, Go, measure the temple of God and the altar and count its worshipers there. Again, this is an Ezekiel image. Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. Ezekiel is also giving a rod, given a rod and he's told to go and to measure out the temple. So let's think about what's happening here. What is this measuring and what is the temple? Well, first, the temple, we believe, is a picture of the people of God, right? In Ezekiel 40 uh, through 48, he's told to measure this temple out, and we believe this is the eschatological people of God. Now, again, there's a little controversy here because some people think that he's actually measuring an actual temple, and this points forward to the time when God will rebuild, perhaps, his temple. But I, I don't think that's what's going on in this case. The temple here in the book of Revelation and throughout the New Testament is the people of God. Right? Jesus, in his ministry, relativized the earthly temple. What, what did he say? Destroy this temple three days, I'll rebuild it. What was he talking about? His body. His body is the temple. And then out the other side of the resurrection, what is the temple? We are the temple. Paul says to the Corinthians, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Peter says to his readers, we are being built up together as living stones into a holy house, a temple to the Lord our God. We are the temple. And in fact, at the very end of the book of Revelation, in chapter 21, the angel will come to John and say, John, would you like to see the bride? Oh, and John wants to see the bride. And when he turns to see the bride, what he sees is a city, a temple city, descending out of heaven. The temple is the bride of Christ. So the measuring of the temple here is the measuring off of the people of God. Now, what's the measuring about? Well, the image of measuring, both in Ezekiel and here, the, the idea of measuring is God marking it out. 
marking it off as secured and protected. And we know this because what he marks off is not trampled, but what he doesn't measure will be trampled. Chapter uh, Verse 2, he says, exclude, don't measure the outer courts, for they will be trampled by the Gentiles. The implication being, whatever I measure off will not be trampled, it is protected. And again, think of the symmetry here between the intermission of the seals and the intermission of the trumpets. What was going on in the intermission of the seals? God was marking off and measuring his people. He was sealing them. And so the measuring of the temple here, the measuring of the inner court of the temple, is God's uh, uh, sealing, marking off, securing his people. So the first point is, in our ministry... In this case, that of prophecy to the nations and to kings, we will be secure and are secured by God. Second point about our ministry yes, we are secured, but we are not secured from suffering, rather, we are secure in suffering. Oh, and this is so important. The image we have in our, the way we get this from our text is the temple, the people of God, is divided into two. An inner court, an altar, and an outer court. The inner court is measured off by God and therefore protected and sealed, but the outer court is allowed to be trampled. So what's going on here? Well, we're going to see this pop up again. We're going to see this theme and this this image, this approach, taken up again in chapter 12. That is, we get two visions of the church. The inner court represents one dimension of the church. The outer court represents another dimension of the church. And I think the two dimensions are this. The inner court that is marked out represents the church in caps. That is the church in principle. The church in her heavenly reality. The church will be preserved from harm. The image of that being marked out by God and measured is God saying, my church will be preserved. It cannot be touched. It cannot be harmed. There's nothing the beast or the dragon can do or the Gentiles who trample. There's nothing they can do to harm the church. This is the church, again, that Screwtape talks about in Screwtape Letters when he says uh, to to, uh, Wormwood about the, the patient. He says, Oh, listen, when I talk about the church, he says, I'm not talking about the church, that invisible force that's moving through history with banners. Oh, that sends fear down our spines. No, he says the church that we can deal with is the church of the people in the pews. Right? Set the patient's mind on that, on these people here. The guy with the double chin sitting next to him. The woman with the funny hat who sings out of tune. The man with the squeaky boots. The grocer who he knows is an extortioner. Set his mind on those things and he'll give up Christianity in a heartbeat. But don't let him meditate or dwell upon the church. See, Lewis is picking up on this theme in Screwtape Letters. That the church is an awesome and mighty thing that ultimately cannot be touched. Screwtape, Wormwood, the dragon, the beast can do nothing to touch, trample, or destroy that. The church will prevail, and the gates of hell will not prevail 
against it. That's the image in the marking off of the inner court. But the outer court is left unmeasured and will, in fact, be trampled. And that, of course, is the earthly dimension of the church. You and me. The image there is you and me and we together as actual members within the church, actual denominations within the church, actual institutions of the church will in fact be trampled. And brothers and sisters, I just believe this is so important for us to keep in mind as we move through our Christian lives because Satan will use this reality, this tension, between God's promise to preserve his church and yet the reality on the ground where the church is being crushed, that in fact Satan will use this to tempt us and to destroy our faith. And I know this because Satan uses this to tempt Jesus, our Lord. He uses Psalm 91. Now I want to read Psalm 91 here. Because I want us to think about this point. I just believe this is so important for us to get our arms around, the arms of our mind around for our sanctification. Because when trouble and affliction hits us, when persecution comes, when we try to be faithful and prophesy to the nations and the kings and they crush us, the whisper of Satan comes in our ear. The words that bothered the psalmist so many times Where is your God? The words of the counselors of Job. Job, you have offended God. God is not on your side. Now I want to read Psalm 91 because this is the very psalm that Satan uses in this case in the second temptation to Jesus to try to tempt him. And if this could be a temptation to Jesus, and it was in fact a real temptation to Jesus, then certainly we are in jeopardy of being tempted by this. Listen to, listen to Psalm 91, and as we do, try and square this in your head and feel the tension between this and the words of the revelation that we will in fact be trampled and crushed. Psalm 91, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Surely he will devour you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in the darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes you shall look and see the reward of the wicked." Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, no plague shall come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, this is the Lord speaking now, because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now the question for us is how? 
This was used by Satan against Jesus Christ in what was a real temptation. And it was a real temptation. So many people ask me, well, so many people, I mean, students and so forth will ask me about the temptation of Jesus. And I think the way people think about this temptation and they misunderstand the temptations of Jesus because we view them as not real temptations. How can God be tempted with anything? But don't forget, he was really man. And we're told that he was tempted in every way like we are. These are, in fact, real temptations. Jesus Jesus Christ is being tempted here with something good. That is certainty in the second temptation, certainty that the Father will have his back. Remember, he's taken up to the temple in a vision. And he's saying, go ahead and jump. For God has promised that he will give his angels care over you and that you will not dash your foot on a stone. Wouldn't you like to know that for certain? You say, well, how could that be a temptation? Surely Jesus knew what he was doing and that the Father would guard him and protect him? Well, if we believe that, then this was no temptation at all. But we're told that he was tempted here. That he is going to the cross, and in his ministry, he goes to the cross is a matter of faith, believing by faith that as he abandons himself to the cross, that in fact the Father will raise him up, and that in the end, though he is crushed, ultimately no harm will befall him. And that the promises of Psalm 91 will be kept to him, but Satan is whispering in his ear, in the midst of the affliction, can you really believe this? If God was with you, would you be out here in the wilderness? If God was really with you, that voice will be in Jesus' ear throughout the three years of his ministry. If God was really with you, would you be weeping like this? Would you be beaten like this? Would you be dragged to Golgotha like this? Would you be nailed to a cross? That temptation is in Jesus' ear. The doubt is being put there by Satan. Now, of course, Jesus has the faith to overcome it. And he quotes scripture and casts Satan away. But when he goes to the cross, it is one of full abandonment and trust and faith. Father, you're all I've got. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus, forsaking the temptation of Jesus by faith, clings to the word and the promises of Psalm 91, the words and promises of the Father, trusting him. He goes to the cross. And brothers and sisters, if this is a temptation to Jesus, then it will also be a temptation to us. When afflictions come to us, Satan will find a way to whisper in our ears, God must not love you. God must have forsaken you. Or like the counselors to Job, God must be angry with you. We will feel like the psalmists who cry out to the Lord, Oh Lord, why do you let my enemies say, Aha, aha, where is your God? He has forsaken you. And the temptation will be strong for us to doubt the Lord. And brothers and sisters, what we learn in Revelation is that we must not trust our senses because our senses will tell us that we are forsaken when affliction comes down hard upon us or when the beast oppresses us. But Revelation is saying, don't trust your senses. 
use revelation lenses by which we're able to look and interpret the situation that's happening around us and to trust that the Lord will be with us. We actually have the privilege of being on the other side of Jesus. We watch Jesus fully abandon himself to the will of God. Oh, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit and say no to the temptation of Satan to doubt him. And in fact, Jesus was raised from the dead. And it's on that solid rock that we may ourselves have confidence to trust. I remember I had a a, a fellow I worked for for a year, a Christian guy we painted together. And I just loved working for him because he was a Christian and we'd spend our lunches praying and reading scripture and talking theology. And it was great. And then a couple years after... Uh, after I, I stopped working for him, his wife uh, developed cancer. And I remember them praying earnestly and calling upon others to pray for the healing of his wife. He moved out west to be with family as they went through the therapies and the treatments and praying and praying that the Lord would deliver his wife from this cancer. And in the end, he did not. And she died. And this man who exhibited such faith and confidence in the Lord for so many years, abandoned the Lord. He walked away from the faith because the Lord did not answer his prayer in healing his wife. The affliction came and it looked like he and his wife were forsaken and Satan is whispering in his ear saying, where's God? What kind of God will let this happen? If there was a God of love and God loved you, this would never happen. And he listened to the whispering of Satan and doubted the Lord and walked away from the faith because his wife died. And how my heart breaks for that, for him. And I want to say to him, brother, what, what do we expect that every time affliction comes, the Lord, it means the Lord does not love us and he doesn't care about us? And I'm not minimizing at all the loss of his wife. It's brutal. The scriptures call us to have the lenses of the Bible by which we are able to interpret these things, things which we do not understand. Remember, even Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I believe in that cry, it liberates us to cry that. We can cry with no understanding, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in the end, what we learn from Jesus is all we can say is, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And in fact, have confidence that in the end, he will not let our foot be dashed against the stone. This text is telling us, don't trust your senses. Don't listen to those in the voice of Satan saying, where is your God? But rather, listen to the scriptures. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark 8, 35. If you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose, and if you are losing your life for my sake in the Gospels, you will save it. Or Peter who says, inasmuch as you suffer, rejoice, for your sufferings are the sufferings of Christ. Or Jesus Christ who says, when you suffer, rejoice, for great is your reward. Brothers and sisters, we have to believe that. Or Paul who says, if we suffer with him, then we will reign with him. And in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We have to believe that. And I would really encourage you to make now the time that you believe it. Mike Bonnegar and I coached softball for many years together. And every year as we come to the sectional championships, it seemed that the day of the section championships were always blisteringly hot. And so we tell the girls, 
in preparation for that, I'd say when we show up tomorrow for the game and we'd practice two hours before the game, it's going to be brutally hot. So I want you to drink water all night, we would tell them. Drink water all night. In the morning before you come to practice, drink water. When you get here, drink water so that you're constantly having to go to the bathroom. I want you so fully hydrated that when we show up to the field, we are ready to play and we can handle the heat. And I would tell him, if you don't do that and you wait until the moment of the game when you are thirsty to try to drink in this kind of heat, it will be too late. You will be dehydrated and you will be weak and you will not be able to overcome the dehydration in the midst of the game when you're sweating and working. And that principle holds for us here too. It is when you are not in the middle of affliction that you must drink and drink and drink the word of the Lord. Visions like this, to hear, yes, Lord, you have told us that we will be crushed, but that does not mean we are forsaken. It is, in fact, the means by which you are building your kingdom. You must drink it now, so when the heat of affliction comes, you will be able to stand. So I encourage you here to drink. Drink now. So in that time when Satan comes whispering with his temptations and feeding doubts into your head, you will not be like my friend who walked away. Oh God, that you would not be like him. But that you will have the strength to stand and like Jesus Christ say, Oh Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. We're talking about the suffering. We are secured not from suffering, but in and through suffering. And we've got to believe that. You've got to drink this. So that when the heat of affliction comes, you've got it. Now, the good news is this. The suffering is only for 42 months. The suffering is only for... Is that... that, Okay. Uh, The suffering is only for 42 months. Do not measure the outer court because it has been given to the Gentiles. So that's us. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, (laughs) who will? The nations, the people, right? The kings. So the world, John 15, the world will hate you, they will persecute you, they will kill you. So yeah, very good question. Who will trample? Uh, the, not, the, the ungodly. The ungodly. Now, it says the suffering will be for 42 months. From here on, we're going to have to get used to these time frames. And you're going to see the same time frame in three different ways. 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years, all the same amount just spoken in different ways. In Daniel's vision, it was times, time, and half a time. Okay? Times, two years, time, year, half a time, half a year. Three and a half. So, 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years, all coming at the same thing. So, the good news is, your suffering is only for 42 months. Bad news is, that's the whole church age. That's the whole age. So, from now on, when we hear three and a half years, 42 months, or 1,260 days... John is referring to the whole period of time between the first coming and second coming. Now, you know this may uh, strike you as somewhat uh, or, uh, controversial because some people view this three and a half years as a period of great tribulation that comes right at the end. I, I do not believe that's how, <clears throat> how we uh, are to read this text. Three and a half is not meant to be a literal time, just like any of the other numbers are not meant to be literal. Three and a half is, if you will, a broken seven. It's half of seven. It's just that. And when we see it, it's never good. It's, it's not going to be good. 
So it's a time of, what the three and a half represents is a time, an ex- a period of time of trouble and affliction. Now, suffering is coming. The outer court is going to be trampled. But the way that I think, and the reason it's three and a half years, not only just this idea of a broken seven, but um, half a seven. But I think it's given to us to encourage us. That's why I say the good news is it's only for 42 months, even though that means the whole church age, which means your whole life, okay? So <laughs> uh, you say, well, that's, that's, really, good. that's really good news. Um, but, what, again, what the book of Revelation is doing here is it's trying to tell you, here's how you should think about it. It's only three and a half years. And I think here of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And, and just hear Paul. I think Paul gets this. Though Paul dies before the writing of Revelation. But the spirit is, Paul has drank this. Right? Paul has, Paul has, has quenched his thirst on this. He's, sat, he's saturated. So we know the affliction that comes to Paul. Whew, I mean, go read it in 2 Corinthians, right? Where he says, I was, you know, I was, the way Jesus gets whipped. You know, we watch the, the uh, passion of the Christ and we look away. We're like, oh man, Paul got that five times. Five times. He was beaten with rods three times. He was stoned and left for dead. He was shipwrecked twice. I mean, this is a man who knew the heat of affliction. But he was so saturated with the promises of God. And even with this vision of three and a half years that he's able to say these words. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. See, outward man Right? Just think in our terms, right? The outward man, sort of the court of the Gentiles, being trampled. My outward man is perishing, but my inner man can't be touched. The beast, Satan, no access to that. My inner man is being renewed day by day. Now listen to this. For our light affliction. Paul, have you read your own autobiography? Whipped 39 whips five times. The man's back. Must have been nothing but scar tissue. I mean, he was just hunched on the way he... Can you imagine Paul just straggling into your city? I mean, this is why he says later that the Gnostics who come in, they're so impressive, but Paul just kind of hobbles in. The man's been beaten. And Paul says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, see, Paul's not listening, he's not looking at his senses, he's not trusting them, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. It's just 42 months. It's just my whole life. That's it. And then eternity. And then glory. And there's no way I'm going to look back and go, nah, I'm not sure it was worth it. Paul says, in the end, it's just three and a half years. Or think about what he said to the Romans in Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. There is a a mindset like the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. He's able to look at his sufferings and say, the good news is, it's only my whole life. That's the good news. So get that mindset in you. It's only for 42 months. Okay, so that was the second point. We are secured, but we're secured not from suffering, but through suffering. Thirdly, our ministry, 
So we're, we're, we're thinking about what is this prophetic ministry we're to have. That's what we're spending time on here, chapter 11. Third point about our ministry is we are to be witnesses. We are to be witnesses. Now the imagery changes in verse 3 from a temple to these two guys. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days. So again, there's the time frame just in a different, on a different angle. They will prophesy for 1260 days. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Our ministry is that of these two witnesses. Again, I would argue the two witnesses here stand for the whole church. The outer temple, the temple, but now these two witnesses are the image he takes up. We know it's not two people because they prophesy for the whole time, 1260 days, three and a half years. What's being spoken of here is not individuals, but the whole church. And again, think of the symmetry between the intermission of the seven seals and the intermission of the seven trumpets. We're dealing with the the bringing together of the church and they're getting their marching orders. This is the whole church symbolized in two witnesses. Why two? Why not seven? Seven would have been good. Seven means complete. That would have worked great. I think the answer is here because the word witnesses. You know in your Old Testament what was required for a witness to be valid. You needed two. And I think the image we get here is just that. Two witnesses. My church, my church brings a valid and legal, reliable witness. Now we're told the two witnesses are two olive trees that are two lampstands. We're not going to get into that, but I'll just reference you to Zechariah chapter four. That's the that's where that reference is taken from. These two olive trees and the two lampstands that represent in Zechariah chapter four, Joshua the high priest on the one hand, and Zerubbabel, the ruler of Israel, on the other hand. So when he says, these are my two witnesses, the two olive trees, the two lampstands, combining it all together, I think what he's saying is, this is my church. Your ministry is to witness. You're to be my witnesses. That's what you were called to do. Acts 1.8. Then the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll receive power to do what? To be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the outermost parts of the world. That's what we're called to be. We're just called to witness. I'm not called to convert anybody. I don't have that power. Just witness. Tell them what you saw. Tell them what I did. Testify to who I am. Testify to your neighbor. Testify to President Obama. Testify to uh, Mr. Putin. Testify Testify to everybody. Testify to your neighbor and everyone around you. That's all. You're my witnesses. But we have in in this calling, we have a kingly role and a priestly role. I think that's the image there. So if we pull together what we've learned so far about our ministry, what we're told is we as the church, you and I, are the true, valid, spirit-filled, light-bearing, remember they're candles, light-bearing, suffering witness of Christ to the world. That's our ministry. The true, valid, spirit-filled, the oil in the lamps, the oil from the olive trees, light-bearing, Lamps, suffering, crushed, witness of Christ to the world. Namely, we put words to the sound of the trumpets. The trumpets blast, we explain. That's, we testify, something's coming. Beware. And we point them to Jesus Christ. And we do so in sackcloth. Right? That's the image we get here. I will give my power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for the whole 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth means mourning. There's nothing glib about the Christian ministry of prophecy. Or when I say prophecy, I just mean proclaiming, declaring, witnessing. We don't do it glibly. 
We certainly don't do it triumphalistically, looking down our noses at these sinners out there. So easy to do. We do it with sackcloth. We do it with lament. We do it with mourning. We do it with sobriety, right? We're sober-minded about this. It's serious. We do it while we're suffering. That's what we're going to find. The trumpets will save nobody. But as we, and if we stand away from the trumpets and just point and explain them, nobody's saved. But when we're suffering, and in that suffering, with a contented joy, like Paul, though my outward man is perishing, my inner man is being renewed, with that kind of confidence and joy, as we suffer too, not like them crying out for death when it flees, no, confident in the Lord in the midst of the suffering. So as we're in the suffering with our neighbors, but not in the despair they have, but with joy, with sackcloth, and in that state, put words to the trumpets, people repent. In that condition, people repent. Now, I, I would argue, our, our church, we need this so bad in our country, all over the world, in fact, we need churches like this. Churches that do not avoid hard truths. Churches that are willing to explain the condition of the world, and yet we have so many churches that want to avoid this. You want to skirt around this. I don't want to say the hard thing that's going to offend the person in the pew. I don't want to really talk about sin. I, I don't want to talk about what the authority of Christ means and the nitty-gritty things of life. People get, you know, you're, now you're meddling, you're going to meddling, you stop preaching. Now, we got to be careful. Preachers have to walk a fine line. But even you, right, even if you're not a pastor, right, even you in your ministry with your neighbor, we don't want to say the awkward thing to our neighbor. Just don't want to say it. You know, I, I don't want to, I mean, you know, politics and religion just end relationships. And I don't want this. I don't want it to get awkward. I just want to go to the little league game and sit next to my neighbor and say, hey, and get on with life. And yet we need Christians with backbones. We need Christians who understand their calling is to be a witness. I, I need this too because I like just going to Little League games and minding my own business, to be honest with you. And yet we need to be those who engage culture and, and we need to do it as pastors too and churches who are willing to say the hard things. Which brings me to the next point, number four, about our ministry. Our ministry is, of the essence, confrontational. And this, this is what makes 21st century Americans just squirm because we do not like confrontation. But what we learn in this book in verses 5 and 6 <clears throat> is that our ministry is confrontational. Now, the image we get here, the, these two witnesses are not any two people, but their ministry is modeled after two people, namely Elijah and Moses. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who harms them must die. So there's confidence. The Lord has your back. These men, uh, these men have power to shut up the sky so it will not rain. That's Elijah. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague. That's Moses. Now, he's not saying it's literally Moses and Elijah who are these two witnesses. But what he's saying is, that's what you are. And what, what, did, what characterized Moses' ministry and Elijah's ministry? They were both confrontational with the powers that be. Moses came into the presence of Pharaoh and said, Let my people go. The Lord is God and Him alone. Elijah confronts Ahab and Jezebel and says, The Lord, He alone is God. So what, what we're being told here is, that's your ministry. It is of the essence confrontational. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace. Oh, how, no, no, He did, right? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Yeah? 
Yeah, well, yes, yes, he did. But, but how do you get the peace? Jesus, I didn't come to just gloss over everything. Just make everybody feel nice and there's no problems here. And it's all good. No, no, no. I came to bring division. I don't think Jesus loves division. That's what the church is about, is reconstituting humanity. God wants a united humanity. But the united humanity will bring division. He understands that. That when the truth comes, some love the truth, some hate the truth. Some are like wax that melt. Some are like clay that's hardened. Division will come. You've got to deal with that. We can't be Christians who always try to avoid confrontation. Our ministry is of the essence confrontational. We are, after all, the light of the world. And those who are in darkness hate the light. They don't just kind of not like the light. They hate the light. They want to extinguish the light. And you are the light. Jesus said in John 15, they will hate you. I'm preaching through the, the, that last bit of the, of the farewell discourse. So I just finished John 15. So it's on my mind. Jesus says they will hate you. They will persecute you. They will kill you. It's like you're one of the disciples and you just stand there listening to this. And you're already nervous. Things aren't going the way you wanted to. And then he says, hey, guys, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Yay, this is awesome. And he says, but I'm going to send my spirit and you're going to need him because they hated me. They're going to hate you. Ooh. And you're not greater than your master. They persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. And when they kill you, they'll think they're serving God. So they're going to do it and feel justified in it. It's like, wow, really, really powerful stuff. So again, it's confrontation. The beastly persecution is coming. And we get that here in verses uh, 7 through 10. Um, The the scene flashes to heaven. Um, Oh, no, 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 I'm I'm sorry, I'm in chapter 12. Um, Verse 7. Now, when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Now, this, by the way, does not mean every single Christian is going to die for the gospel. What it does mean is Paul's going to say, we're, sl- we're like lambs led to the slaughter all day long. The church is always dying. Right? We may not be dying, but the church is always dying. That's why Paul can say, at the same time, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Because somewhere in the church, somebody, our brothers and sisters are being killed today. And yet we're always rejoicing because other brothers and sisters are being baptized. And, be, you know, and it's great. So we, we have this odd tension that's going on. When they finish their testimony, so no one, no one, even those who are killed, no one is killed before their testimony is complete. <laughs> see, see, Satan's power is limited, right? So the beast can't do, when, they're, when it's complete, then, then they will kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, Sodom, Egypt, Jerusalem. So he just pulls, he kind of characterizes all the enemies when you ask who will do this, you know, who will trample. Well, Sodom, Egypt, and Jerusalem. You know, the sexually immoral the power of Egypt, the idolatrous blasphemers of, of uh, Jerusalem who crucified the Lord of glory. Just put all that. that that's what everybody is. It's, that's what every, all the, all the uh, op- opponents of God in his kingdom are. And so not only do they kill him, right, but there's like this disgracing. Then they'll drag their bodies out and, and leave them out there. Right? They'll gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. And then not only that, they'll gloat and celebrate. They'll send, they'll send presents to each other. That they've killed the church. They've killed the Christians. They've really put the death blow to the kingdom now. And they'll send presents to each other. Weird. But they're excited over this. So our ministry is confrontational. And many will die. Then fifthly and lastly, our ministry will be successful. And this is an awesome image in verses 11 to 13. 
So, they, so imagine this now. The church personified in these two guys. They go out, they witness. The beasts rise up after their testimony is complete, kill them, drag their bodies out into the middle of the street, leave them there so that everybody can gloat over them. They're partying. They're saying, yay, we come. And they're sending presents all over the place and gloating and celebrating. But then, then, our God is awesome. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet. And terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up from heaven to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. The image again here, I think, is not that these two guys actually died and were raised and went up, though we'll all be raised. But it's that while the church is struck like this, gloated over, mocked in their crushing. And think about Rome. Think about Rome, crushed out in the Colosseum. You can't get lower than these people. I mean, you can't get a worse condition of power. You have no power. You're being dragged out to wild beasts. Go read the, the persecutions. They were the most awful and terrible ways they killed these people. And it looks like the church is down and out for the count. Caesar and Christ meet in the Colosseum, and by all apparent eyes, oh man, Caesar got the best of them. I mean, Christ is toast. But three and a half days later, three short days later, a breath of life is breathed into them. And the church that looked dead stands up. They're raised. And they're not only raised, but they're seated with power at the right hand of God. So our ministry, we've already said that our ministry is Christ-like, right? It's, it's a cruciform ministry. How are we going to minister to the world? We're going to have to suffer and die. But it's not just cruciform, it's resurrection form. I don't even know how you say that, but it's the form of the resurrection. Yes, we will be like lambs to the slaughter, but we will be raised. The church will be raised. I don't care what happens to the church in America, what the worst they can do someday, if indeed the culture turns so hard against the church like it did in Rome, so that they get to a point where they can glow. Now we don't have to hear any more of those haters. Those homophobes want to jam their morality down our throats, a bunch of hypocrites. We can silence them, take away their tax status. How about that? Shut them up if they say anything. We'll call it hate speech. Yeah, let's do that. Hate speech. So if they say a word, we can throw them in prison and shut their pastors up, put fear in them of the beast. It looks like the church is down and out. But what we're told here is our ministry will be successful when they kill it. Air quotes kill. Breath of life comes. It stands up. The people look in horror. (laughs) Where'd, Where'd they come from? When finally Constantine becomes a Christian in 312 AD, and all of a sudden the empire, like wildfire, just Christian. I'm sure the opponents of Christianity who hated the idea that Christianity was around just wonder where did they come from? How'd this happen? I thought we snuffed them out under that great persecution. No, a breath of life, and they rose, and they were given power, and the world is shocked. Now, here's what's awesome about this. And they were shocked. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here, and they went up in a cloud. That is, they were given authority. And at the very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. Now remember, when we had the last trumpet, nobody repented. But now, right, so the trumpets come, nobody repents, their hearts are hard. But now... We have people giving glory to God. And notice the, notice the proportion. An earthquake comes. 7,000 are killed. So God rips out some judgment. Remember, those who kill by the sword, they'll be killed by the sword. Fire will come out of their mouth. That's how they'll die who persecute my people. The Lord has our back. The Lord has our back. 
Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Not one ounce of injustice will not be dealt with. 7,000 die in this earthquake. The rest give glory to God. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah's on the run. Right? He had this amazing showdown at, at Carmel. Now he's on the run. And the Lord comes to him and he says, Look, I want you to go back and I want you to tell the people, everyone who bowed the knee to Baal, they're going down. And he sends in his servants to kill them. And in 1 Kings 19, we won't read it, but in 1 Kings 19, all were killed except for 7,000. 7,000 were those who did not bow the knee to Baal. The rest, killed. But notice the inverse in our text. In our text, we get the inverse proportion. The majority repent. 7,000 don't. Great expectations. Again, the book of Revelation is a positive thing. It's an encouraging, it's an exciting thing. Do you expect that? I think we expect, well, in the end, look, there's a bunch of few of us that are going to make this thing. We're going to make it through. There's going to be a few Christians there, but the overwhelming majority of humanity is going to hell. You feel that? That's not Revelation lenses. Revelation lenses says, no. No, they'll repent. They say, but I know, but look at all the numbers of people who are not repenting. Well, how do you know where we are in this story? We always think we're right at the end of the story. Maybe we're in chapter 2 of a 30-chapter story. Maybe Christ is coming back 8,000 years from now. How do you know? We always think, no, he's got to come back soon. We're told here the day is going to come when the nations repent. And as we move through this, that hope is going to grow. Remember, what is the, what is the praise in chapter 5? Every race and every tribe and every tongue and every nation. There's a great vision given to us here. Does that excite you? Do you, do you hope for that? The day when mercy triumphs over justice. God's mercy will be seen in a much greater way on Judgment Day than justice. Oh, justice will be there. Every sin will be dealt with. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Either it will come on your flesh or it will have come on Jesus' flesh. But every sin will be accounted for. But on that day, mercy will triumph over justice. Oh, we're going to be so much more amazed on that day of God's mercy. It's going to blow away the judgment. Even though we kind of think the opposite. I just don't think that's Revelation kind of thinking. The Bible has grand expectations. And now we know that by our faithful witness, the suffering church, who lives and loves the prophecies of the Lord, who dies for them, but who is raised up, will be the means by which the Lord brings about these great expectations. I just ask you, are you prepared for that? Do you want that? And do you say, yes, Lord, that, yes, here am I, Isaiah, here am I. Send me. That's a really hard calling, but it's only for my whole life. It's only for my whole life. And, and these, these light afflictions, these light afflictions aren't even worth comparing. And they're actually working. Did you hear that in 2 Corinthians 2? For, they're actually working for me an eternal weight of glory. They're working for you. Your afflictions are working for you. It's an amazing thing. Romans chapter 8, we are more than conquerors. You know why we're more than conquerors? Because not only do we overcome our afflictions, we actually put them to work for us. We're not just conquerors. We're more than. We take those and they work for us. We're more than conquerors. Our afflictions work for us. All right, let's see if we can get through the seventh trumpet then. This brings us to number five, the end of chapter 11. The seventh trumpet, end of uh, chapter 11. Seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said the kingdom of the world has become, just enjoy this. This is what we're looking forward to. This is it, this is it. 
The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. Can you hear the Alleluia chorus? They're singing it. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. We're going to be here in that choir. We're going to be in that, and we're actually going to be able to sing good harmonies. I'm looking forward to that. Some of you are already there, but I'm not. The seventh trumpet will come, and it will be the end again. We've circled through it once in the seals. Now we're back here again. Different angle, coming with a little different angst. And here we have the consummation of all God's promises, the reclaiming of his kingdom. Notice what he says, the kingdom of this world. Some of your Bibles might, if you don't have the NIV, some of your Bibles might say the kingdoms of the world. It's not as singular. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God. God only ever intended there to be one kingdom. And in the garden, Satan came in and tempted Adam. We're going to talk about this later with the slander, slanderous uh, description of God. Satan abdicated his authority. He was created to be the vice regent, the king over creation, but he abdicates his authority to Satan, and boom, we got two kingdoms. The kingdom of God has now been split, and now we have this kingdom of Satan. And through the rest of scriptures, right, you've got these two things. You've got the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, Genesis chapter 3. You've got the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. You've got uh, St. Augustine who says there's a city of God and the city of man. We've got these two. There's only two. But God intends and will make it so that it's one. And what we look forward to here is the day when God brings to consummation what he's promised to do in Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, the first time the gospel is stated, it's a gospel of kingdom. I will, I will set enmity back between you, Satan, and the woman. What happened in the garden is Satan who was, uh, excuse me, uh, Adam, who was a friend of God and therefore enemy of Satan, became friend of Satan and therefore enemy of God. The promise in Genesis 3.15 is, I will restore enmity between you and the woman, which means I will restore friendship between me and man. It's gonna, we're going to have to get there. That's the whole story of the Bible. Is God doing that? But I'm going to put it back. Between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. That's the whole Bible. Right there. That's the whole Bible. And now we see the day is coming when it will be brought to fruition and to conclusion. God will restore things the way they're meant to be and restore it to one kingdom. God's intent is always to reclaim his kingdom. This was Christ's mission. Christ came that he might have the kingdoms of the world. That's why the third temptation Look out, all the kingdoms of this world, I'll give them to you right now. What do you mean, I'll give them to you? Who has the kingdoms of this world? Have you ever thought about that? What's going on in the third temptation? This is why people don't think it's an actual temptation. How can he tempt him with something he already has? It'd be like you tempting me with my house. I'll give you that house up there if you do something. Oh, no, thanks. No, thanks. I already have it. Thanks. Is that what Jesus does? Just flick Satan? Yeah, they're already mine. What's the temptation in that? There's a real temptation. Satan has authority over the nations. God has turned the nations over to Satan. Satan has them. Christ comes to reclaim them. Satan tempts him by saying, I'll give them to you right now, no cross. Now, Jesus wants the nations. See, he tempts him with something good. He's tempting him with, I want the nations. The temptation is, I can have the nations with no cross. But by faith, he believes 
to reach out and grab it, to snatch after it, is to lose it. It's what Adam does in the garden. Just eat of the tree. You'll be like God. God said, no, 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 trust me for the knowledge of good and evil. Satan says, just grab it, grasp it, you'll have it. You don't have to go through the affliction. You don't have to go through the work of maturing as a servant of God. Just grasp after it. And Adam goes, Jesus says, no, no. But the temptation is there. Satan has authority, delegated authority over the kingdoms, but Christ has come to achieve it. And that's what he does on the cross. So after he dies and after he's raised, what does he say? Now, 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 all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Make disciples of all nations. They're mine. They're mine. That's, that's what we do in the church. We just go now claiming, like I said in the beginning of this class, we just go planting altars all over the place. This is God's. This is God's. Take every thought captive. This is God's. This is God's. Whatever you do for a living, build an altar. Say, this is God's. I'm working for him. It will all be his. America will be his. Saudi Arabia will be his. Russia, it is his. It is his. In due time, we'll see. But that's what, that's what we do. That's what's going on here. Essentially, one, one way you could take the whole theme of the book of Revelation is by an answer to the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what they're celebrating here is prophetically the day when that comes. His kingdom has come. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. That's the promise. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth. Again, where are we going at the end of this book? It is not to some spiritual never-never land. Out in the clouds somewhere. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done here. Christ wants to reclaim this earth. It's his. It's his kingdom. And he will reign over it forever and ever. That's why I say the gospel is political. Because Christ reigns now. This is no pipe dream. This is our hope. Notice how in verses 15, 17 to 18, it's in the prophetic past tense. Right? He's saying, look, it's done. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. And then the 24 elders, down there, they go again. Down on their faces. And then verse 17, what do they say? They can't help themselves. Down they go. And they say, we give thanks to you, Lord, God Almighty, the one who is and who was. Notice what, what's missing there. The one who was, is and who was, what's missing? Is to come. Why? Because he's come. This is the celebration of the end. He has come. No more is to come. We're celebrating here. He has finally done it. The one who is and who was. I think the new, um, what is the new King James adds in there. Any of y'all have the new King James? Does it say is to come in there? Yeah, it's not in the Greek. Well, no, what I'm asking is, does it say in verse 17, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was, who, uh, who is, who was, who is to come. Yes. That's not there. They add that in there because they're thinking it must have just got dropped out in, in one of the later texts because that's how he's identified in earlier parts. No, Bauckham just does such a great job on this. He, goes, he says, no, no. The reason it's not there is because John didn't write it. And the reason John didn't write it is because in the vision, he has come. Remember, it's not the one who was and who is and who will be. It's the one who was and is and will come. And once he comes, we don't look forward to his coming anymore. There is going to come a day when this whole thing's over. And we'll just celebrate now. We don't have to keep going, yeah, well, one day. 
And notice, who, was, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry. Your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead, for rewarding the servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. And then, boom, the temple's opened, and out comes the ark, the ark with which they marched around Jericho warning the nations and which finally brought destruction. It wasn't the trumpets actually that brought down the walls. You all know that, right? It wasn't when they yelled real loud at the end of the seventh time around. They just, yeah! They the walls. It wasn't that. It was the ark. And the trumpets were just warning, hey, the God that's marching around here is really powerful. And when they got around the seventh time and blow the trumpets, it was the ark that brought it down. Remember the angel, the commander of the Lord's army coming out of Jericho with his sword drawn when Joshua meets him. The battle's already done. Joshua, you just go march around the walls. And when you blow, the walls come down. So here we have something that's not a pipe dream. It is what we're looking forward to and hoping in. A hope, not a wish. Let's jump into chapter 12 because we've got 10 minutes and I'd soon get into it. Chapter 12, I have here chapter 12 through 14. The woman, the dragon, the beast, and the lamb. And there's others we could have thrown into that great list. In chapter 12 now, we've ended a cycle so we've done the letters, the seals, we've gone around, new perspective, right? Parallel progressive. Now the trumpets, now 12 through 14, we hit another cycle, but this one's got a different flavor to it. It's not going to be a series of seven. We will get there in the next one, the bowls. This one is a backstory. Very interesting in the vision. Now we're going to be pulled back. We're going to kind of get a co- the context of what's going on. We're going to be pulled out and see the backstory of everything we've been talking about. So let's think about this. Just read the beginning of chapter 12. So a new vision, a new, new chapter now, new scene. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet. A crown of twelve stars was on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain, and she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. A couple points about this. Oh, nope. Oh, go back. Point A, the glorious church. The first thing we get in this vision is a glorious vision of God's people. Who's the woman? Well, you might know the Catholic Church says this is Mary. Uh, I do not believe this is Mary. I think what we have here is a vision of God's people. Actually, we get a vision of God's people, both Old and New Testament. It starts out with the Old Testament Israel. She is the woman pregnant with the Son of God. She is the one privileged to bear. So imagine her as a woman now, uh, personified as a woman. And Paul does this in Galatians chapter 3. He says that, that uh, Jerusalem from above is the mother of us all. So we, we have her portrayed as a woman that is Israel. 
She's crowned with stars. The image there is that of Genesis 37, the, the vision of Joseph. Remember, Joseph gets that dream, and how is Israel portrayed as the stars, the sun, and the moon? And so here this woman is crowned with that, right? She's a woman. She's the personification of Israel, crowned with that Joseph dream of Israel. Israel in the Old Testament was the bride of Yahweh. And that's why she's the one privileged to give birth to the Son of God. Now, Mary, Mary is, the, is the final manifestation of that, right? She's sort of the personification now of all of Israel. She represents all of Israel, what Israel's supposed to be, a virgin bride, pure, devoted to Jehovah, obedient, Right? Yes, Lord. I mean, the Catholics, the Catholics, we would argue, maybe, maybe push Mary to a level we shouldn't go. But I will say this. We have a lot of work to do as Protestants on Mary. Blessed are you among women. And we go, don't talk about her. I preached a sermon once coming up to Christmas on, on Mary <laughs> from the text. You know, it wasn't saying, we're going to do and, and people came up to me, oh, why are you doing that? I said, because it's in the Bible. Like, she sang this song. Here's who, how we should understand Mary and her role and all this. And that sounds really Catholic to me. What do you mean Catholic? They're the only ones allowed to talk about Mary? I mean, come on. Now, I don't think this is Mary, though Mary is the personification. Obviously, she's the actual woman who gives birth, but she doesn't fit so many of these other things. For one, she's taken out into the wilderness for the 1260 days. That's the whole time. Mary is not today somewhere out in the wilderness, okay, being fed by the angels, all right? Um, so what we have here is an old te- the Old Testament Israel, the bride of Yahweh, who was privileged to bring forth the seed of the woman that would bless all the nations. And it was painful. She's in labor. She's crying out in labor. Think about the history of Israel. It's a painful... This was not... I mean, it was a privilege like you kind of want until you see what it means in their history. And it's like, it's, oof. you know, it's a painful labor that, that brings forth the Son of God that we get. But nonetheless, we get a glorious vision of God's people. She's beautiful, okay? But then secondly, we get an image. How do I have it here? An image of the dragon. I have in my notes a vicious enemy. The veil gets pulled back here on our enemy, like what we're really up against. We are not up against socialism. You know, we're not up against communism. We're not up against Islamic terrorism. These are all things we've got to deal with. Don't, don't get me wrong. They're real problems, but they're not the problem. And in our text, we get the problem. The problem is the dragon. And the dragon wants to kill the seed of the woman. He waits for her. Throughout Israel's history, there is the dragon just waiting, waiting, plaguing her. Right? And all the images, we don't have time of the Leviathan. All these different kingdoms are referred to as a serpent. Ezekiel calls Pharaoh a serpent. Uh, one of the prophets calls Babylon, the great Leviathan, a serpent. As if the serpent is just lingering around throughout the history of Israel, just waiting, trying to kill, trying to destroy, trying to keep the son from being born, and waiting to destroy him. It's a vicious enemy that we have behind everything. And I would argue that his desire is not only, and we'll see, the desire of the dragon is not just to kill the child, but when he can't get to the child, he goes after the woman. When he can't get to the woman, think of the inner sanctuary there that's measured off. He can't get to her. He goes after the offspring. Think of the outer sanctuary that's trampled by the Gentiles. We'll, we'll, we'll review this again. But he goes after the offspring. That's, that's you and me. And anything to destroy. Our problem is not socialism or communism, but he'll use that if he thinks he can to destroy us, but he'll also use free market capitalism to destroy us. Right? He'll use the beast, but he'll also use the harlot. 
I mean, he'll, whatever it takes to destroy. He, he's not, it's not like Satan loves socialism. Satan loves destruction. Whatever it takes, he loves it. That's what he wants. Now, the image of this dragon in verses 3 and 4 and 9. In 3 and 4, we're told he has seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns. So think here of a parody we're going to see a lot of this. Next week we'll look at the parody of the Trinity. But, but the parody of God, seven heads. And on each head is a crown with diadems, right? The, this dragon has authority. And it's, it's a complete authority. It's not like a little authority. It's seven heads with crowns and diadems. It's a completely usurped authority mimicking the rule of God. And what's his mission? He's set out in our text to destroy the child. As I said, it's a story of the Old Testament. And he sweeps with his tail a third of the stars out of the sky. Well, what are these stars? Well, again, in the vision of Joseph, the stars are the sons of Israel. So maybe we could read this, I'm not saying definitively, but maybe we could read this as the story of the Old Testament where Satan has the power with his tail. He sweeps out a third of the stars. We might read this as the apostasy of many within Israel who turned against the Lord, seeking to destroy the, the, the child that would come, he sweeps out of the sky a third of the stars and he waits. He lays in wait for the woman to give birth. And here, if we wanted, if the manifestation of the woman is Mary, the manifestation of the dragon here is Herod. I kill all the children. I want to kill that child, right? So, so the dragon works through Herod here in his, his perverse manner to maintain his own authority. Herod's a beast, but the dragon is empowering him. That's what Revelation tells us. Now later in verse 9, no time. Um, Well, I guess we'll have to wait. But um, in verse 9, next week what we'll do is we'll start there in verse 9 where we get the, the veil pulled back on this dragon with these great descriptions. He's the dragon, that serpent of old also called the devil or Satan, the deceiver of the nations. It's like, it's like John is going to be real. Here's who he is. You want to know who he is? Be real clear. He's not just a dragon. This is, again, where I love screw tape letters. The beginning of screw tape letters, he says, he says, look, don't ask me how I found this out, but I found out that Satan likes, you know, because the screw tape letters are these demonic letters that he somehow, he says, don't ask me how I got these letters, but I just read them. And he says, but, uh, but Satan likes either one of these two things. Either you to think devils are these characters with pointy tails and pitchforks and red suits. Something to laugh at. He loves that when you think that. Or he likes the exact opposite. He likes it when you think of devils as something that just scare you to death. They put the fear, everything's a devil, everything's trying to kill me and destroy me. Either, see, Satan likes any, anything that destroys. The one doesn't take it seriously, great. Let your guard down and you're done. The other is so paranoid that he doesn't trust the Lord, you know? And so we want to use Revelation here. We'll start next week with this to say, okay, who, who, let's look clearly. Who is he? And where do we need to be on guard? Because when we learn, when he gets named, then all of a sudden I can, oh, I see him. Oh, I hear him. Not, not literally, you know what I mean. But again, I just get this, frankly, practically from reading screw tape letters. I, I, I read screw tape letters, and all of a sudden, it's like little experiences in my life, and I go, oh, oh screw tape. Right? It's like, oh, C.S. Lewis just does, does such a great job of pointing out our struggles in sanctification that when you read it from that very creative perspective, you just start having ears to hear it, eyes to see it. And if we can name Satan, the dragon, like John will do for us next week, we'll have eyes that will uh, be able to have our guards up. All right, so challenging text. I just want to warn you. 
that the challenges don't end. All right, we're going to go to chapter 13. Well, we're going to see the dragon go after the woman now and then after you and have authority to kill you and to crush you. And then, and then we're going to go to the beast. The dragon doesn't just work alone. The dragon empowers a beast, and not just one beast, but two beasts. And they have authority, and they do some pretty rough stuff. And so we're going to have to weather this before we get to finally the victory over the beast. And when we get there, we'll all breathe. And we'll sing in Revelation 19 to the glory of God. So that's what we have to look forward to. Pray yourself up for it. All right, let's pray as we go. Oh, Heavenly Father, these are hard things, sobering things. But we pray that you would, by your Spirit, gird us up. That, Father, we might be faithful witnesses, those who do not fear death. We don't fear suffering, for, Father, it's only for the rest of our lives. It's only three and a half years. It's only 42 months. And, Lord, that's just not to be compared to the glory that awaits us. Give us eyes that look through this to your glory, that see our suffering as the means by which you're building your kingdom and make us so excited about that, that, Father, we're excited to participate in whatever way you call us, that we might be faithful. We desire the day when the kingdom of this world will be the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And oh, how we long for that day when we will sing that hallelujah chorus with all the saints, that innumerable host, that 144,000 of your people. Give us eyes to see that, that we might be encouraged to serve you tomorrow in whatever way you call us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a production of the Dwark Hill Study Center. All our lectures and classes are available for free streaming or for purchase on CD and download at dwarkhill.org. Please visit our website to receive more information regarding the Study Center and upcoming events, and to view articles and blogs from our contributors.